Well, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 today. And it seems like every new generation, we tell every new generation, you are going to be the generation that changes the world. You will be the ones who transform society. And I, I would say probably in many cases that is absolutely true. I just look around the, the world and I see the advancements that, that, um, that have been made in medicine or in technology. I'm amazed just some of the pictures and some of the findings coming, coming back from, uh, I believe it's the James Webb Telescope. Um, just incredible discoveries are being made. And despite the advancements in technology and communications and medicine and space exploration, the bottom line is this. We are still selfish people. Selfishness still dominates. It dominates in marriage. It dominates in employment. And we end up with this false idea. We, we, we tell this new generation, you're going to change the world as though through greater exploration or greater discoveries in medicine or greater discoveries in, in technology that our deepest needs will somehow be met by discovering better information or by developing a new app or having better medicine, that our greatest and deepest needs will somehow be met by some new discovery. So as we come to chapter 8 of the book of Ecclesiastes, let me remind you of where we have been. Just a quick review. The author has been on a search for knowledge and a search for wisdom. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 25, the preacher says this, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom. I turned my heart to seek and to know wisdom. And so there's been this search for wisdom, this search for knowledge, knowledge being the right application uh, of wisdom. And one of the things that we've discovered and we saw last week is that The wise person is rare. Rare is the wise person. And we learn that wisdom is not grounded. And and the reason that wisdom is rare is because we discover that wisdom is... People think... Misunderstand the source of wisdom. They misunderstand that wisdom is grounded in divine revelation. It is not grounded in observable or testable information. The fear of God is not foundational, but dismissible. And this is why the wise person is rare. The wise person is rare because they think that true wisdom will be found in some new discovery. If I just get a better education, if I just get more information, if I just had this little bit more of knowledge, then... our deepest needs would be met. We are lured by the modern thought that our source of liberation is within us. 
that we just need more education, that perhaps man's upward evolution just needs a little bit more time. We just need more data. And then we would solve and meet our deepest needs. And the preacher has discovered, oh, this isn't working. That's still falling short. We're still lacking. So that's where we've been. My hope, by way of preview of where we're going to go in chapter 8, can perhaps be reflected in the way I've titled this sermon. I've titled this sermon, Random Thoughts. And I've titled it Random Thoughts because in many ways, this chapter lacks a consistent theme. And it's almost as though the preacher, I know he didn't drive a car, but I don't know, sometimes when you're just out and about, you're driving around and and a thought hits you. And you kind of chase that thought for a little while and that takes you to another thought. And I know you're paying attention to the road, so maybe it doesn't happen when you're driving, but when you're, I don't know, cooking or doing housework. And these random thoughts come and they lead you down a direction and then they lead you to another thought. And that thought takes you down a, down a different path and that leads you to another thought. And as I'm reading chapter 8, I'm thinking... That's exactly what's going on with the preacher. He's just kind of going from one thought to another. And there is a little bit of connection between the thoughts and maybe uh, some sort of a theme, but he's basically wandering. And he's going here and then he's going there. Remember I told you that the preacher doesn't always go in a straight line. He doesn't always take us directly from point A to point B. And I know we're taught that the shortest distance between Two points is a straight line, but the preacher's not interested in the shortest distance. He's interested in exploring all of the paths. He's, ex- he's interested in exploring all of even the dead ends to see where every path goes. And today we are going to see a number of different paths, a number of different random thoughts. So just a couple of big themes that we will, or big thoughts perhaps, that the preacher has. Uh, He's going to uh, begin with how the godly interact with authority, and namely civil authority. So how do we interact with the government? Well, there's a good question. What is my responsibility? What is my role as a citizen in this governmental system in which we live? And then that's going to take him again back to thoughts on injustice. That's been a big theme. You may have noticed a huge theme in the book of of Ecclesiastes is what about injustice? Why is there injustice? Where does it come from? And then we will come to a conclusion. And the conclusion we will find is uh, uh, the author once again will reaffirm his statement that wisdom is limited. That wisdom is rare. So, with that, I'm going to read chapter 8 of the book of Ecclesiastes. I pray that you will follow along with me as we read God's inerrant word. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. 
Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those whom are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And so our text begins with two questions and a proverb. Question one, who is like the wise? And question number two, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? This is a transitional verse. Many pastors, people have preached on this or written on the book of Ecclesiastes. Some would include it in uh, chapter 7 at the, as the conclusion of chapter 7. Others put it at the beginning of what we call chapter 8. And, and I think he's starting a new thought. I think it's transitional. He is, uh, he is ended one thought and he's getting ready to start another thought and he does so with this transitional statement. Two questions and a proverb. Who is the wise? Well, we've already seen in chapter 7 that rare is the wise. In fact, he would even say that, look, at one in a thousand people are wise. And probably that's somewhat metaphorical. He's not saying that every thousandth person might be a wise person, but one in an incredibly large number of people is the wise person. It is rare. Let, let me point out, I know Solomon, the, the person who wrote this, is often considered a wise man, but when you read about his life, what a fool. I mean, his very first action as a wise man, well, probably his second action, 
was utterly foolish. I think that's why Ecclesiastes was written towards the end of Solomon's life when he realizes, like, man, I had all this wisdom and what an idiot I was. It's my own personal opinion. But there are biblical examples of wise people, and I would put Daniel. Daniel, perhaps, is one of the great wise men. Even though wisdom is rare, one in a thousand, Daniel. In fact, in the, as, as we're introduced to the book of Daniel, we read this about him and his friends. In every matter of wisdom and understanding, Daniel and his friends knew ten times more than the others. In every matter of wisdom and understanding, Daniel and his friends were way wiser than everybody else. And yet, despite the value that wisdom provides, wisdom has boundaries. We're going to discover, and we saw a little last week, wisdom does not answer all of life's challenges. There are questions that are beyond us. There are questions that are too great for us. They are too deep for us. In fact, even at the end of the book of Daniel, when you read Daniel at the end, Daniel seems to struggle with what has been related to him. All sorts of mysteries. And when you read that, it's almost like Daniel's like, okay, I don't know what all that means, but I'll write it down. You told me to write it down, I'm writing it down. Don't ask me to explain it, but here it is. And so wisdom is rare, and yet wisdom has value. So we see that this in the proverb, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face has changed. Wisdom, while we may not have wisdom about every aspect of life, wisdom nevertheless is not to be discarded. Wisdom has value. And the wise, we will address, the wise is the one who fears God and hates evil. Wisdom gives hope and endurance in difficulties. Wisdom enables one to rise above earthly circumstances. Wisdom, the fear of God, uh, brings a joy to life that changes everything, even one's appearance. It makes his face shine. It changes the hardness of his face. The fear of God has a positive effect on an individual. And so we begin with this These two questions in this proverb. Who is the wise? Who knows the interpretation of the thing? It is rare. And yet, it is valuable. And it is worth pursuing. And then, when we get to chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 2, verses 2 through 9, we see the preacher addressing the, the matter of how do citizens live in wisdom with civil government. And he would say this, I say, keep the king's commands. Now, Solomon's a king. But keep the king's commands. And of course, we might say, well, why? Well, Solomon is going to give us three reasons. Now, we might say why, but this would have been very, very obvious. This would not have been a, an, an odd command or an odd statement in the time in which this was written because people understood that a king has been ordained by God. Even an evil king is God's servant. 
Even Pharaoh was God's servant. And so, keep the king's commands because he is God's servant. And so this would have been obvious to the original readers. He is the... So why do we keep the king's commands? Because the king has been ordained by God. He is God's tool. He is God's means of upholding justice and protecting citizens and providing order. And you can see this in Daniel 2.22, John 19.11, Romans 13.1 and following, Titus 3.1, 1 Peter 2.13. This is not a rare or unique passage of text or admonition from God's Word. This is something that is prevalent in God's Word. Obey the King's commands. And he goes on, do not quickly or do not be hasty to go from his presence. In other words, do not quickly disobey the king. Do not quickly disobey or go away from his presence. Jesus told us that we are to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. We are called to be godly citizens and to respond to any godly government request. So the first reason, obey the king's commands. Why? Because he is God's, God has made an oath to him. God has established the king as the civil leader. Obey the king's commands. Because by doing so, you are actually obeying God. Then he goes on and says, Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. In other words, the king has authority. Ultimate earthly authority. He does whatever he pleases. The king can enact his will on rebels. Do what the king commands. Why? Because the king can punish rebels. The wise fear God and the structures that God has instituted. And that can be a wide range and not only civil uh, uh, structures, but familial, family structures, ecclesiastical church structures. God has established certain structures um, and we are to obey those structures. Why? Because the king, the one in charge, does whatever he pleases. And then finally, the third reason we are to obey the king's command that the preacher gives is, who may say to him, what are you doing? In other words, his, his word has authority. Now, I know in our system of government, we say that all the time. What are you doing? We are blessed to live in a structure that I believe is God-ordained that permits us to go before a leader and say, what in the world are you doing? But the idea is this. The king has authority. So just a a brief application, as I mentioned earlier, this is not necessarily limited to civil government, but any authority, family authority, parents, parents have authority. Vocational, you have a boss. Educational, you have a teacher. And we might say, well, who died and made you boss? You see, we are naturally inclined to rebel against legitimate authority. And I know some of you right now are thinking, okay, we're supposed to obey the king. What about unjust commands from an unjust authority? What about that, pastor? Well, I think the Bible speaks to that. But let me 
back up and let's first address how do you respond to a legitimate command? It's easy to say, what about an illegitimate, an unrighteous command? We'll talk about that. But let's first deal with what about a legitimate command? What about a legitimate law that is faithfully enacted or um, enacted within the realm of that structure? What about that? Let's first address how do we respond to a legitimate command from a boss, from your parents. I mean, right, parents, you know good and well. You tell your kid not to do something and what are they going to do? Yeah, they're doing exactly what you told them not to do. Because we are naturally inclined to rebel against a legitimate authority. And so we need to think about how do we respond to a legitimate command. And there are numerous examples of believers who would not compromise what God commanded. Perhaps most succinctly stated in the New Testament where the disciples said, we must follow God and not man. Daniel may perhaps provide a great example of both sides. When it came to eating the king's food, we'll talk about this in just a second, he used wisdom. So he didn't have to eat the king's, command, or eat the king's food. But when it came to worshiping an idol, and so he, but when it came to worshiping an idol, he said, listen, I'm going to follow God and not the king. I'm going to rebel against the king. Regardless of what the cost may be, the cost is probably my life but I will not violate what God has told me to do. So we are called to follow authority. And that, even, that includes even in a church. The, whole, the New Testament talks, I think it's in Hebrews, it tells the church, obey your leaders. I know you would think that's probably uh, my favorite verse in the Bible. It's not, but it's there. It also gives some instruction on how leaders are supposed to lead and we are to be servant leaders, but anyways, we don't talk about that. And so, I say keep keep the king's commands because he is God's agent, number one. He can make your life miserable. And his, he has the authority to make these statements. Whoever keeps a, a command will never know evil, an evil thing, and the wise in heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Follow authority. Keeping the laws will keep the wise from evil. Keeping the laws will keep the wise from evil. However, if we are caught in a bad situation... Wisdom will provide a description. I just gave one of Daniel. Daniel was caught in a tough situation and he used wisdom in to, to enable him to eat the food that he felt would not compromise his walk with the Lord. See, the wise know when to oppose and the wise know when they ought to adhere. 
The wise knows it's like, this is a command I should keep. This is a legitimate deal. I should keep this command. Even though I don't like it, I don't like the fact that I paid probably, I don't know, 80% of my salary to taxes. I don't like that, and we're getting ready to pay taxes again. But the wise know when to oppose, and the wise know when to adhere. Wisdom will help us to deal with those challenging situations. It reminds me, Simone and I were in uh, Caracas, Venezuela, visiting my sister. And um, it was back before it utterly collapsed. But Simone and Jody, my sister, were taking a walk and they were walking by uh, where all the embassies were. And um, they were going by the United States Embassy. And so I think it was Simone taking pictures. So, of course, taking pictures, there's the U.S. Embassy. And they get a little bit further down. And now they are approached by numerous armed guards with automatic weapons. You have no right to be here and you have no right to be taking those pictures. They have the authority... to make life extremely miserable for my wife and my sister. And I suppose they could have just said, yeah, this is the U.S. Embassy and we're U.S. citizens. We can do whatever we want. Who are you to tell, you, tell us what to do? We can do anything. We're, we're free Americans. I guess they could have done that. They would probably still be in jail. <laughs> or wisdom might say, and uh, my sister, who was able to speak the language, was utterly apologetic. Oh, we're so sorry. We didn't mean anything. We'll be happy. We'll, we'll delete all of the pictures. And wisdom said, you're the boss, and you're armed. And one of the reasons you're armed is because you have authority in this situation. And even though we are not on U.S. Embassy property, We have not earned any favor with any of the ambassadors or any of the employees who are um, secure within that compound. And so with great wisdom, they were very apologetic. And they deleted the pictures. And in great wisdom, they went for a walk the next day and they didn't go by the U.S. Embassy. That was the last time my sister and Simone walked by the U.S. Embassy on that trip. We do not want them to see us again. We do not want them to think that we are staking out the United States Embassy for some sort of terrorist attack. Wisdom. Wisdom. When we are in these difficult situations, wisdom will help us. When you are pulled over by the police, wisdom says, don't say, What do you want, you idiot? Don't you know I pay your salary? Wisdom would say something else. Wisdom will also aid in honoring God at the right time and in the right place. 
And then as we look at verses 6 through 9, we're going to see that wisdom has boundaries. Wisdom has boundaries. There is a time and a way for everything, and yet man still has trouble. The bottom line is this. Despite great wisdom, wisdom doesn't know the future, and wisdom has no power over death. As wise as you are, you may be a great futurist and be able to uh, kind of see the direction that a culture or a community is heading, and you are able to, to anticipate that. That's great wisdom, but ultimately you, wisdom does not tell you what the future is going to be. And wisdom has no power over death. And we see this exemplified in the issue of war. There is no discharge from war. Warfare is dangerous, and yet a person defending their country cannot just abandon their post. There is no discharge. Your life is on the line, but you don't get to just leave. And so wisdom has boundaries. It cannot save your life. It has no power over death, and it doesn't know the future. And yet wisdom is to be sought and cherished. But wisdom, as valuable as it is, wisdom is not God. God is God. So, this first random thought is some reflections on how does a person deal as a function as a citizen and one who glorifies God in their citizenship. How do we give honor to God? How do we love Christ as citizens of this particular country? And how do we become and maintain being good citizens? And some of it requires great wisdom. The next big issue that the preacher deals with is he comes back to the issue of injustice. And this is uh, an issue that he is um, passionate about or troubled with because he sees it all over the place. And in verses 10 through 14, I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. I've seen the wicked praised in death. They're wicked people. But in death, they're praised. I don't get it. Perhaps one of the great examples of this is in Psalm 73. We see the author Asaph, and he is troubled by how God's enemies seem to receive all of God's blessings. And the, the preacher is troubled by this too. He's saying, listen, I've seen the wicked, and, and they go in and out of the temple, and then even the community where they perpetrate their evil deeds, even there at their death, they're praised. I don't get it. That's empty. That's pointless. I go to their funeral, and instead of everybody saying, what a wicked man, we're kind of glad he's gone. But no, he's the one who ripped us off, took advantage of us, and we're all saying, oh man, what a great guy. Now we're just going to miss him so much. You know, he got his wings. He became an angel. It's like, and the preacher's got going, no, he's a wicked man. And he went in and out of the temple. He went to church. And the community seems to love this wicked guy. I don't get it. That's 
his issue. Even in death, this wicked person is praised. The people who have taken advantage of her are the ones praising um, the one who oppressed them, and this is vanity. And then he goes on, he says, not only that, but because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to evil. In other words, evil breeds evil. People live as though they have beat the system. Because justice is delayed. Hey, look. I did this or that and the other, and you know what? I didn't suffer any consequences. I'm going to do it again. I got away with it. Not only did did I not get arrested and thrown in jail, but I didn't get struck by a lightning bolt from God. I guess I'm pretty good. I guess it's good to go. People live as though they have beat the system. People commit civil and heavenly crimes and do not receive immediate retribution. This, the preacher saying, this is difficult for me. Why didn't God just strike them down right there? Why didn't the police come and arrest them? Instead, they get medals of honor. And then that leads others, perhaps you and I, to say, well, if you get away with doing evil, then I might as well do evil too. I might as well be unjust because after all, you can get away with it. Lightning won't strike me. The government won't know. So I'm just going to go ahead and do evil as well. People live as though they beat the system. Delayed justice only emboldens the wicked. Even those who are not wicked end up saying, well, I might even just go ahead and do the same thing. Now, some might say that justice delayed is justice denied, and perhaps that tr- that's true in an earthly sense, but justice delayed is God's kindness that should lead us to repentance. When you do evil and God does not strike you dead, that should drive you to your knees and give praise to God who did not strike you dead immediately, but that he is patient with you. And I am joyful today, in the day of joy for Advent, one joy I have is that God delayed justice in my case. I gave him many reasons to strike me dead immediately. I cursed his name, I blasphemed his name, I despised him, I hated him. I cursed him, and I called others to do the same. And God, in his kindness, did not strike me down. And I hear people all the time saying, they're unbelievers, and they're saying, wow, you know what, I was almost in an accident, but God spared me. Then you need to follow God. You need to respond by falling on your knees and calling upon Him and recognizing Him as the Lord of the universe who had mercy on you. People just say, oh, well, I got away with it, so now I'm going to continue on the same path that I was on, denying God, um, rebelling against Him by my actions, and uh, coming against and spurning the sacrifice of Christ. No. That is just, that's not wisdom. And so I am joyful that God delayed justice in my case. And I said earlier that perhaps 
justice delayed is justice denied. And perhaps that's true in an earthly sense, but it is not true at all in the heavenly sense. See, justice was, let's just take my case, where I spurned God and despised God, and he did not strike me down. Was justice denied? No. Justice was fully satisfied. It was satisfied by another. It was satisfied by Christ who bore God's righteous justice on my behalf. But justice was not denied. It just fell upon somebody else. And for that, my friends, wisdom would say you need to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. The proper response to God's patience is to seek his mercy. And then the author goes on and talks about how judgment is inevitable. Listen, the wicked seem to get away with this stuff, but judgment is inevitable. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Judgment is inevitable. The wicked will stand before God Almighty. He will not prolong his days like a shadow that extends at the end of the day. He will not prolong his days. His days are set. The number of his days are set. And ultimately, church, we will all stand before a holy God. And it will be well for those who fear God, but not for the wicked. The wicked cannot prolong his days. He has no control over his sojourn on life. His days of escaping the justice of the civil government, but especially the days of uh, skirting the justice of God will come to an end. And that person will be held in account by Almighty God. Judgment is inevitable. And then the preacher... ask the question, why do the righteous suffer? There's a vanity that takes place on the earth and there are, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. In other words, the righteous end up getting the, the negative consequences that you would think apply to the wicked and the wicked seem to get the positive consequences that you thought think ought to go to the righteous. And he's saying, ah, this doesn't make sense to me. This is emptiness. This is vanity. Why do the righteous suffer? And the question then is, can wisdom answer this question? Why do the righteous suffer? And it's interesting how the preacher Response to the question. I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat or drink and to be joyful for this will go well with him. So I've seen the righteous suffer and I've seen the wicked prosper. And so what is the, the wise response? And I think he's like, enjoy the gifts that God has given you. Enjoy life. You might say, well, that's just kind of a resignation, and perhaps maybe it is. You see, but the preacher understands that we live in a fallen world, and it's easy to fall into the trap of being perpetually offended, or at war with everyone, or at war with everything. 
And the preacher is realizing, I don't have all the answers to why the righteous suffer. But here's what I know. God has given you great gifts. Enjoy them. God has given you a family. Enjoy your family. Celebrate together. We're getting ready for a holiday season. Enjoy your family. God has given you a church family and friends. Take somebody out to lunch. Call them during the week and encourage them. Enjoy being with them. That is a blessing. God has given you, I mean, we just got done with Thanksgiving and we're getting ready to go to Christmas and I guarantee you, what, we talk about how much weight we put on, how much weight we put on because we eat so much. God's like, and, and there is injustice in the world. And when you have opportunity to affect that, you probably should. But ultimately, no matter how well you take care of the injustices in the world, we live in an unjust, fallen world. So enjoy the things that God has given you. He's not saying ignore injustice or don't do anything. He's just saying don't get so wrapped up in the things that you forget all of the great things that God has done in your lives and for you. God has given you a family. Enjoy them. He's given you a church, and that's a blessing. And he has basically come to the conclusion that, listen, there are things that I can figure out through wisdom, but ultimately God is sovereign, and I don't get everything he does. I, I think he's getting wiser and wiser by saying, I can't figure out everything God is doing. Some of the things he does are beyond my ability, beyond my capability. And so we have this riddle of injustice. I applied my heart to know the wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night does one eye sleep. And I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he still cannot. In other words, the preacher gets to the end of his thoughts, his random thoughts, and he says, I can't solve the riddle. There are things that I don't understand. I don't understand injustice. I can do a few things. He's king. I can do a few things to make sure that injustice doesn't uh, affect my kingdom or my, my sphere of influence. But no matter what I do, there's still things that I cannot explain. And some will respond by denying, well, then God must not exist. Others might conclude that God must be capricious and wavering, that he does one thing this way, and then the next day he kind of does something else, that he is a changeable God. The preacher does not succumb to these foolish conclusions. In fact, he ends up saying, all that happens in the world is the work of God, verse 17. But he does not fully understand God's ways. There are mysteries about life that we cannot understand. Yet to conclude that there is no God is a foolish conclusion. But there is a God who is above us, who is greater than us, whose ways are way beyond us, whose thoughts are way beyond us. And the preacher is getting to that place going, okay, there are some things I get and some things I can figure out and some things that I can be certain about and then there are some things I just don't know. Because God is bigger than all of this. We live in a, a mind, we live with a mindset where we think we can have all the answers. 
that we should be able to explain all of the mysteries that we find in the Bible. I always tell my theology students when we get to the doctrine of the Trinity, listen, we, serve, we should not be surprised that we serve a God who is greater than our limited thinking. He is beyond us. So, and I'll say this to you also, don't come up with some silly analogy. God is like water or God is like a clover. They're all heresies. All of them are heresies. So just realize there are some things about God we do not understand. And that would only make sense because we are limited and he's not. But he's made himself known to us. All that happens in the world is the work of God. And some expect God to have all the answers and then they curse God when, there are, when mysteries remain. But the wise enjoy what God has given. Human wisdom, for instance, cannot find out the day of death. You don't know that day. Human wisdom cannot find a solution to injustice. But the preacher says, so let God be God and enjoy your family. Be generous. Relieve suffering. Enjoy a vacation and let God be God. The reality, church, is that we do not have all the answers. The solution is not to curse God or deny his existence, but to be content with our limitations and recognize that we are limited and praise the one who is limited, limitless. One of my favorite passages of text, um, I probably say that every time I say it. But anyways, this is a great one. I find myself drawn to it often in Romans 11, uh, verses 33 and 34. Paul has just dropped theological bombs on the Roman Christians, on the doctrine of election and God's sovereign choice. And then he concludes with this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgment, and how unscrutable are His ways! Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? So the Apostle Paul says, Yeah, I just revealed to you some amazing things. Things that are just awesome. And in the end, and you probably have about a zillion questions. There's probably a zillion mysteries that get brought up in, verse, in chapters 9 through 11. And Paul concludes with, who knows the mind of God? Who is going to sit down and counsel God? Listen, we take what he has given us, and some things we understand, and some things are way beyond us. Wisdom is useful, but wisdom has boundaries. Wisdom is not ultimate. And I'll conclude then with a passage we, we referenced a bit last week, but it's in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24. And it's very applicable today and it's very applicable for our Advent season. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The wi they sought the philosophers, they sought mathematics, and they sought logic, and they sought all of these things, and through all of that, they did not draw one 
millimeter closer to the wisdom of God. But rather, God chose what in the wisdom of man they saw as foolish. What is foolish to men was actually the wisdom of God. And the foolishness of man of men was that God put on flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The Christian faith... So, we've often stated this truth, and I'll state it again. Just so you know, the Christian faith is a revealed faith. What I mean by that is the Christian faith is not discovered. You don't go to books and philosophers and thinking and all of these things and you're going to get closer to God. Or you're going to discover salvation through Christ. The world did not, through wisdom, the world did not know God. How did the world know God? through Christ dying on a cross. That's how the wisdom of God was revealed, was through God putting on flesh, fulfilling the law perfectly, and dying on a cross. So if I initiate a diligent church, People think, well, then I'll discover God. I remember witnessing to a guy, and he said, well, I'll just keep looking, and I'll just keep doing my own research. I will tell you this, research will not draw you closer to God. I'm not saying don't research the Bible or anything like that, but it is perhaps through that research, God will make himself known. But the Christian faith is a revealed faith. How do I know? Look at Adam. Adam sinned. And what did he do? He hid from God. God revealed himself to sinful Adam. Adam, where are you? Moses was just minding his own business, doing his own thing. He thought that he could bring about justice on his own, and then God, through a burning bush, made himself known to Moses. Jesus is the wisdom of God who appeared and brought forth the wisdom of God. He is the word becoming flesh. In our wisdom, we do not find God. In his wisdom, he makes himself known. And primarily, he makes himself known through the person of Jesus Christ. Our Father God,